24 and 25, Jesus says, here's the end. It's coming. Here's what the end of history is going to look like. And then he transitions in uh, chapter 26, and we're looking at the last couple of days of his life. Everything that we've been looking at for about the past three months has all taken place in the last week of his life. And you're probably saying it would be nice if you could do it in a week as well instead of three months. But it's taken us some time to move through. What we're going to look at today are events that happened before Thursday. So on the Thursday of the last week of his life, Jesus has the, he has the Last Supper, he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's put on trial. All of those things happen on Thursday. So what we're going to look at are things that happen leading up to those events on Thursday. We're not exactly sure when they happen, but all of them point in the same direction to say Jesus is about to be arrested, Jesus is about to die, and there's not really anything you can do about it. That's where all of these things are pointing to the inevitability of his death. So I'm going to read 16 verses, and then we're going to look at this in three, um, three chunks. So verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, so he finished this sermon on the end of history, he says to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they planned to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what has been done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So again, all of these things are pointing towards the inevitability of Jesus' death. And we want to look at it. We're going to use Mary. She's the woman. Uh, that's, it's Mary, Martha's sister, and Lazarus' sister. That's who anointed him with this oil. And we're going to kind of use her as our central figure. And we're going to look at these other people off of or in comparison, really in contrast to Mary. So the first thing I want you to see is the motivation that Mary had in contrast to the motivation of the religious leaders. Here's this slide. Here's what the religious leaders thought of Jesus. This is just stuff from the Gospel of Matthew. It's not from any place else, and it's not even all of it. It's just a few things. This fellow is blaspheming. That might not be a big deal to you. That was stonable for them. If you read in Acts, Stephen was stoned for blasphemy. Why does this fellow eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, might not be a big deal to you, huge deal for them. That was eating with people who were unclean and who could defile you. By the prince of demons that he drives out demons, I think we get that's no good. They're calling, saying at a minimum he's inspired by Satan. Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Again, huge deal to not keep the Sabbath, um, looking for a reason to accuse him. So at that point you can see they're not necessarily in Jesus' fan club. Go out and plot how to kill him. Why do you break the tradition of the elders again? Why are you breaking the rules? Tested him. And then they ask him by what authority you're doing these things. And when they're saying that, they're trying to trap him is what they're trying to do. If you remember those stories that we looked at, they say by what authority you're doing these things, trying to lure him 
into a trap that they can, where they can use his words against them. So that's what they think of him, not necessarily positive things. So in their mind, he's a heretic, he's a blasphemer, and he has some connection to the devil. Their responsibility as the religious leaders of the day is to protect the folks. If you read the Old Testament, one of the pictures that, that you'll see repeatedly for religious leaders is shepherd. It's this idea, my job is to protect. That's what these guys were supposed to do as the religious leaders. They were shepherds of the people. Their responsibility was to provide spiritual protection and oversight. So if that's my job, spiritual protection and oversight, and there's a guy who has a massive following, and Jesus did, remember we talked about him riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, and you got everybody saying, king of the Jews, and he goes into the temple, and he causes this uproar. People are following him. So my job is to protect, and I've got this guy, and, his, and, and he has a huge following, and that's what I think about him. What am I going to do? Something other than nothing, which is what the Pharisees, they don't do anything. And they don't do anything because they're scared. These two verses, just two of them, that show they're, they're afraid to do anything about it. Fear was their motivation. They thought, blasphemer, heretic, prince of darkness, my job is to protect, but because I'm afraid of what might happen if I do something with him, I'm just not going to do anything. And then you see Mary, on the other hand. Her motivation is different. Her motivation is love. You've got this meal, males only. Only men would have been eating at this meal. Women were not invited. Somehow she gets in, which would have caused a bit of an uproar. And then she walks over to Jesus and pours out this perfume on his head. Now, again, imagine here we're doing this. Somebody walks in and picks out one of you and dumps oil on your head. It's going, we're probably not reconvening like this. It, it, it changes things. I mean, that would be a showstopper in a lot of cases. And that's what she did. And for her, this perfume, that was her safety net. It was her security blanket. It was her nest egg, whatever you want to say. Single women were not in a good position in this culture. They needed a father or they needed a husband to take care of them. There's no indication that Mary has either. And so this perfume, which the Bible says was worth a year's wages, think about that. Think about what you make in a year. That's what her perfume was worth. And she just dumped it on his head, literally poured it out on him. That's her security. That's her safety net. That's her nest egg getting dumped all over Jesus' head. uh, Fear is what I would call a negative motivator. It keeps us from doing certain things. In, In some cases, that's great. Those of you who have kids, you want them to be afraid of getting hit by cars. It keeps them from playing in the street. It's fine. However, it rarely motivates us to do anything. It motivates us to not do certain things. And you see that with the Pharisees. Their fear kept them from really doing anything. Mary's motivated by love, which is positive. Love demands expression. Love demands um, demonstration. It it compels uh, people to do things. And you see the difference between those two and the way they acted. Mary's love for Jesus caused her to go to a dinner party that she was not invited to, to make a scene, and to pour out everything she had on Jesus' head. The Pharisees' fear kept them from acting on their convictions. They thought Jesus was a blasphemer and a heretic and a son of the devil, but they were so afraid of the crowds they didn't do anything. 
Mary knew him to be the Messiah, and her love for him caused her to, 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 to do this extravagant act of devotion. Second thing, you see the difference between the way the disciples and Jesus view what Mary did. So again, you're sitting in the room, this woman comes in uninvited, dumps perfume all over Jesus, maybe kind of, again, kind of steals the show. And what do the disciples do? It says they're indignant, that is, they're offended by her. They call it a waste. And then they, then they kind of give the spiritual baseball bat. This money could have been given to the poor. They're trying to shame her. You're, you're a poor steward. You wasted this. You could have done more with it. More good could have been done if you'd sold it and gave it to the poor. They're, they're, they're wearing her out a little bit. And then you have Jesus, on the other hand, his perspective. It's different. You see the contrast. He says, why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing. That, that phrase, beautiful thing, is good work. She's done a good work. And then he says this, which to me is pretty amazing. He says, and every, every time you talk about me, you're going to talk about this. Everywhere the gospel is preached, this story is going to be told in memory of Mary. The gospel is about Jesus, but he says, every time you're talking about me, you're going to tell this story also. That's how wonderful what she did really is. You can't get farther away. The disciples, his closest friends, say they're offended, it's a waste, and, they, and you could have done better with your perfume. Jesus says, get off her back. It was beautiful, and it was so beautiful, in fact, we're going to make sure everybody knows about it. Difference in perspective. And then last thing, you see this thing with Judas, and you, again, Judas and Mary are moving in opposite directions. Give Judas the benefit of the doubt. If you look at him in the best possible light, some people tell you he was just greedy. According to John, he, he was a treasurer. He stole money from Jesus and the disciples. So absolutely, you can move in that direction and just say he was money hungry and he saw a chance to make a little money, and so he did. Again, you can kind of look at the, I guess maybe the irony that Mary is willing to give this perfume to Jesus, pour it out for him, and it's worth a year's salary. Judas is willing to take three months, four months salary to betray Jesus, just the different value they place on him. You can see that there. But if you give him the benefit, of the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what, Jesus picked him, he's one of the 12, he understood Jesus to be the Messiah, what he did, wretched for sure, heinous for sure, worst betrayal in the history of history for sure. But what if you look at it this way and say, Judas was... He understood Jesus to be the Messiah. What was frustrating him and what ultimately led to this betrayal was that Jesus wasn't being the Messiah the way he wanted him to be the Messiah. We've talked before, many of the Jews were expecting a Messiah who would be kind of like Superman. He would, be, he would kind of come in and he would be on his horse and he'd have his sword and he would wipe out all of the guys that were enemies of Israel. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for this military political stud who would come in and wipe out all of their enemies and establish Israel as the, at the top of the food chain in terms of prominence. And so it could be that what Judas is trying to do, it's, um, it's kind of like uh, David Banner and the Incredible Hulk. He's kinda, I'm going to back him into a corner I'm gonna, and, and make him come out. I'm going to make him angry so that the Hulk comes out. That's some of what you see here with Judas. He's trying to force Jesus' hand to say, I'm going to get you arrested. It's going to, it's, it's going to lead towards your death. And you're, because you can't die because you're the Messiah, it's going to force you 
to transform into this guy that we all know you to be. Mary, on the other hand, says, Jesus, according to him, he says, she's anointed me for burial, opposite direction. I don't know that Mary knew everything that was going on. I do think that she was inspired by God to this act. I don't think she just woke up one morning and said, hey, I'm going to go dump my life savings on Jesus' head. I think she was, I think there was some inspiration there that led her to that. And as we, as we read through this, the story of the crucifixion over the next few weeks, you'll see Jesus doesn't get this anointing deal. That was a big, he, he, he wasn't prepared because of the way he was, um, because of his crucifixion. And so I think what you see there is Mary submitting to God's way of doing things. Judas trying to force his own agenda in terms of what God is trying to do. And so when I pull that apart for us and I look at those different contrasts, a couple of questions come to my mind. The first one for me is am I more motivated by fear or love? When it comes to my relationship with God particularly, am I more more motivated by fear or am I more motivated by love? Again, fear is a, I'm going to call it a negative motivator. It can keep me from doing things. I see love as a positive motivator. It inspires me to do things. And so before you answer that too quickly for yourself, maybe think about what characterizes your relationship with God. Do you spend time saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, you spend your days trying not to tick God off. How about that? Is that your approach to him? How do I not screw this thing up? I talk to people all the time who are waiting. They're not just waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's like those old cartoons. They think God has a grand piano, and they're walking under the sidewalk, and they're just waiting on him to drop it on their head. There's this sense, and it's sad. It's not funny. It's sad that people live under that sense of fear, that God is just waiting to zap them with the lightning bolt the first time they mess up. And what that does is that causes, it causes you to live in this little B square. I'm not going to do anything. Because if I don't, nothing is better than something wrong. And so I'm just going to stay right here. Maybe that's a question to ask yourself. When, when an opportunity presents itself, do you think more about what's going to happen when you blow it? Do you think more about the ramifications of failure? Or do you think about the way God can use that to advance his purposes? Don't lie. Think about that. Many of us are motivated by fear when it comes to our relationship with God. We see his will as a tightrope. And it's, we don't want to, we start moving a little bit to the side, we're going to fall off. And we don't want to do that, so I'll just stand on the platform. That way I can't be accused of making a mistake. We looked at the parable of talents a few weeks ago. The last guy who buries what he's been given. Why does he do it? Because he's afraid of the master. He's afraid, I'm not going to get a good return, and then you're going to punish me, so I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to bury it. And that's how many of us live before the Lord. So afraid of missing things, of messing up, of failing. And even if it's because we don't want to make him look bad, we wind up not doing anything, we just, we, we just stay stuck. We live in this little bitty box. Or are you motivated more out of love? Love demands expression. Would you say, yeah, that characterizes my relationship with the Lord? Many of you played sports before. You can't play not to lose. When you do that, what happens? You lose almost every time. If you play not to lose, you're going to lose. That's how many of us approach our relationship with God. I'm going to play not to lose. Instead of saying, I'm going to play to win. I'm going to attempt, and I'm going to try, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to obey, and it'll work or it won't. But I'm going to live moving forward, not just standing still, afraid of 
consequences. And that ties right into the next question for me. Jesus says about Mary's things that this is a beautiful thing that she's done. It's a good work. And I ask myself, if I look back, are there beautiful things in my life? Are there good works? I'm not trying to create a resume to impress anyone or to impress God. I just want to know. If love demands expression and I'm motivated out of, by love, then where are the beautiful things? Where are the good works in my life that would say, somebody would say, absolutely. Yeah. Or even if everybody thinks it's stupid. They think it's reckless. They think it's wasteful. They think it's extravagant. Jesus would say, get off his back. It's a beautiful thing that he's done. It's a good work. Again, parable of the talents. If you've been given one or two or five, it doesn't matter. What he's asking is the same. It's the process that he's looking for. What are you doing? What am I doing with what he's giving me? With money, yes. With time, yes. With relationships, yes. With strengths and talents, yes. With opportunities. What what am I doing with those things? Are there any beautiful things if I look back? Maybe more importantly, are there any beautiful things if I look now and not just back? Are there good works right now? Again, not trying to build a resume, not trying to perform my way into a relationship with God. For Mary, remember it started, it was devotion first, relationship first, and out of relationship comes responsibility. So out of this connection, this love that I have for the Lord, there should be some fruit that comes from that. Incidentally, he says the the, the poor you'll always have with you. He's not being callous. It's a statement of fact. This is a one-time event. Jesus dies once. Mary has one bottle of perfume, and this, this thing is not, this is a non-repeatable event, her anointing Jesus. But you're going to have the poor on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. You can take care of them all those other days, and take care of them all of those other days. This, this is, this is a one-shot deal. And you see there, again, this idea of the relationship that leads to responsibility, this idea that says I'm connected with him, and out of that, fits beautifully, comes what I do. We talked last week, we looked at the sheep and the goats. We're not, we're not saved because of the way we treat the poor at all. But the fruit of salvation should be the way we treat the poor and everybody else. That comes from a restored relationship. It's not the basis of my restored relationship. And you see that again, that here. You've got the devotion and love of Mary that leads to this act of anointing Jesus. It leads her to break into this dinner party that she was not invited to. And it leads her to pour out her safety net, her security blanket, her nest egg on Jesus' head. And so for me, I just think, all right, well, if I'm motivated by love, there should be some beautiful things. There should be some good works. So where are they? Again, not building a resume, just asking the question. And if I don't see them, then it becomes, well, what am I motivated by love? Am I? Or am I fearful? Or am I apathetic? Or what, what's keeping me? If love demands expression, then where's my love for him? Where is it being expressed? I question for you as well. In Mark's version of this story, one of my favorite lines in the Bible, when Jesus is saying, saying to the disciples, get off her back. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing. He said she did what she could. Beautiful picture of what he's looking for from us. He's not looking for heroes. He doesn't need a hero. He just, he's looking for people who will do what they can. You're brilliant or you're dumb as a bag of rocks or you're somewhere in between. And he's just saying, what can you do with what you've been given? Somewhere, somewhere on the, we're all somewhere here. We're massively talented or we're 
incredibly not talented, or wherever you fit on the continuum, what he's saying is, all he's asking you is, just do what you can. That's it. There's 17,000 people, and they're all hungry, and one little boy says, hey, I've got a lunch here. He can't feed anybody. It's one boy's lunch. Five loaves of bread and two fish. He did what he could, brought it to Jesus, and what did he do? Multiplied it and fed everybody with some left over. I truly believe this. The answers to the many, at least some, I think many, of the questions that we face as a community, are, they're in this room. They're not here. They're in this room. That's when Bo was praying about creativity today. I'm just going, yes. Some of you are brilliantly created. Brilliantly created. That's a gift that God has given you. The solutions that we're looking for, that we are desperate for, they're in you. Just a matter of recognizing, hey, that's, that's what I can do. I can take the picture. I can make the movie. I can figure the way through that political issue. I can connect with this business person. I can build this well. Whatever it is, the creativity is, is here. The solutions to the problem, they're here. They're not out there. No offense, they're not. I don't just mean in this room. You know what I'm saying? In the body of Christ. We don't just have to knock off other people's stuff. The God who created everything that you see in nature that is incredibly unique and beautiful and functional and powerful and subtle and all of those things lives within you. He's got more. He didn't shoot all his bullets the first six days. There's more for us. If we'll just connect and say, you know what? That's, yes, I'm going to do what I can. God, I'm available. I'm not trying to make a resume, not trying to convince anything, not trying to prove it. I just, I love you. And so there's going to, and the result of that is beautiful things. Good works that I've done. Last question is completely different. Those first two things tie together real nice to me. Fit like this. Am I motivated by love? Therefore, are there beautiful things? This next one is tricky. I'm not going to talk a lot about it. Judas and Mary. She, was, she submitted to the way God wanted to accomplish his purposes. Judas didn't. He tried to force his own hand. He tried to push his own agenda. Mary submitted. Judas tried to manipulate. For me, the question, and this can be dangerous to think about, but I want you just to do it at least I want you to give it a shot and see if it goes anywhere. I want you to assume that the circumstances that you're in, good, bad, or ugly, that assume those circumstances are how God wants to work in your life. Don't treat your circumstances as an enemy is what I'm saying. I'm not, saying where, I'm not asking you to say God caused all of this stuff to happen. That's, that's, a, that's a whole different question. What I'm saying is you are where you are, and the things swirling are the things swirling, and now assume That's how God wants to work in your life, through all of that junk. Again, good, bad, or ugly. What does that change for you? What does that make God about in your heart and in your life if the assumption is these circumstances that, yeah, we can pray that they would change, but until they do, my assumption is this is how God wants to work in me. Does that change anything for you in terms of your perspective? Does it change anything 
in terms of your recognition of what God may be trying to do in you. It's interesting. Both the devil and the father wanted Jesus dead. They were in agreement on that. Two different reasons, but both of them wanted him dead. The circumstances, that's how God wanted to accomplish it. I think it was Eugene Peterson, I can't remember. He said, you can't do Jesus' work in a non-Jesus way. And so the question for us, it's not just, where, God, where do you want me to get or who do you want me to become? It's how do you want me to get there? The ends never justify the means in Christianity. <laughs> the journey is vital. The process is vital. The step, that's all we have are the steps, whatever that looks like. And so what he's asking from is, do you tr- can you submit to the how? Not just to the final destination. Can you submit to the how? Joseph in Genesis, what you guys, you my brothers, what y'all meant for evil, God meant for good. Again, you have the devil and God wanting the same thing, using the same circumstances. The devil wants to you, take, you, take you into this pit. God can use the exact same circumstances to accomplish his purposes in your life. But you've got to stop boxing sometimes. You've got to stop fighting that stuff. It's, I'm not a kung fu guy. I've watched Hong Kong Fooey, and it seems like that's the way to go. Rather than I'm going to go toe-to-toe with my circumstances, it's to say, this is what's coming at me, and I'm just going to use the end. I'm just going to redirect. I think that's martial arts. I'm just going to redirect those things instead of doing this with those. I'm banging my head against the wall. If I'm honest, what circumstances can I change anyway? I can change my clothes, and that's about it. So rather than spending all my energy doing this, with stuff I can't change. What if I say, this is what's coming at me. God, I recognize this is what's coming at me, and I'm just going to submit that to you and ask you to redirect that to accomplish your purposes in my life. I don't like this stuff, and I'm going to say I don't like it. But I'm just going to say, God, this is what's coming. I'm going to give it, just submit it to you, use it as raw material to move me into the place you want me to be and to make me into the man that you want me to become. It's a completely different way of looking at your circumstances. I'm not trying to fight them anymore. It's, I'm, not, I'm not capitulating. I'm not giving in. I'm redirecting the energy of that stuff that's coming at me and just saying, I'm not going to go toe-to-toe. I'm just going to recognize. I'm going to use that. I'm going to leverage that, if you like that word. I'm going to leverage those things. Ask God to leverage them, actually, in a way to accomplish his purposes. So Joseph betrayed, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, forgotten about in jail, rather than, getting, rather than trying to say, I'm going to check. He can't do anything about it. He just said, just say, all right, this is what's coming at me, and God, you redirect those things to accomplish your work. And what happens? He winds up second in command of Egypt. Pretty good. Doesn't mean you're going to be the boss of anything, but it means that God can do that, that he can do that for you. And he can do that for me if I'm willing to submit to the how. Not just the final destination. The dream Joseph had. All your brothers and your parents are going to bow down to you. Everybody likes that. But the how is what's important. And there's a, So I've got to be willing to submit. Not just, not just say, yeah, this is ultimately what God wants to do. But say, this is how God wants to make it happen. Completely different way of looking at things. Hopefully it can be helpful for you. Let's pray. God, I want to pray first for those who are drowning, who are literally being crushed 
by their circumstances. And God, I pray if there's any freedom, if there's any hope, if there's any joy, if there's any peace in the idea of saying, I'm just going to assume that what's going on in my life is how God wants to work. You can absolutely change the circumstances. We all want rainbows and butterflies, but until the assumption is this is how God wants to work in me. He wants to use these things to move me into the position he wants me to be. He wants to use these things to make me into the person he wants me to be. God, I pray just just grace for those men and women right now, that they would sense you speaking to them and encouraging them and maybe providing some hope where there's only been despair and discouragement. God, I also want to pray for all of us that we would move from fear to love. You say perfect love casts out fear. For any in this room who are relating to you or keeping you at arm's length out of fear, God, I pray that we would know this radical love that you have for us that would stir love for you in us. And out of that love, I pray, would would come beautiful things. God, not so people think we're great or we get written up in the newspaper. Not even so that things are better in our community. But there would be beautiful things because you're worth it. You're worth everything we've got. You're worth a life. You're worth our life savings. Whatever that looks like. It's never a waste if it's poured out for you. It can't be. And so, Lord, I pray for us. No guilt, no condemnation, no striving, no performing. God, just, again, out of, a, out of a love that we have for you, God, I pray from this body of 200 men and women, God, I pray for beautiful things, beautiful things in our government, beautiful things in our business community, beautiful things in our families, beautiful things in our schools, beautiful things in our churches, beautiful things... In, the, in our culture, creative, art, and media. God, I pray for beautiful things from these men and women. God, that none of us would shrink back and bury what you've given us because we're afraid of what might happen if we blow it. But God, from a place of, of devotion to you, we would give you what we have. We would do what we can. And watch you multiply it out time after time after time. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with ministry. We'll have prayer teams up in these corners. We'll pray with you about anything that you've got going on. If anything that I shared stirred something.